What is up, guys? Welcome to episode 65 of the Triage Method podcast. Me, Gary, and Mr. Patrick Farrell back again this week. And this week, we're going to be talking about training. But first of all, Paddy, how are you this week? I am positively fantastic. I am munching down on some grapes here, as you can see, uh, if you're watching on video. You might even be able to hear it if you're uh, listening to this on audio. Some crunchy-ass grapes, man. They're in the fridge, you know? Uh, and I'm not even going to apologize because I'm actually starving after the gym and uh, I had no food pre- prepared. So great it is. Um, but yeah, Gary, what are we actually going to talk about today? So today is going to be for those individuals who feel they're stuck for time in the gym or you're stuck for time and that's the reason you can't get to the gym. Okay. So they're, they're, you know, you might be already going to the gym, you're trying to follow a program, but because of limited time, your adherence is quite poor. Okay. So that's one side of it. And the other side of it is you've never really gotten started because of that time restraint. You know, you think that you've got to be doing these 90 minute two hour workouts that you see people doing on Instagram. when in fact, that's probably not the case. So we want to give you some useful strategies today that you can apply to your training just to make it a bit more efficient because realistically i think most people could get a damn effective workout in in like 30 to 45 minutes you know and even shorter if you need it because like 10 minutes is certainly better than zero so there are the types of strategies we want to start to to try and implement if possible i see um i see so <laughs> so what we're talking about is people who are time poor Yes. Time poor. Yes. Which is effectively everyone. Yep. Pretty much. To some degree. Don't be fucking drawn in your to some degree. <laughs> it's pretty much everyone in this day and age. Unless you are like a student or something and you literally, I don't know, you do like 15 hours a week in college and you're like, oh, it's so hard. And you're there in the gym for three hours per day, you know? Because that's, that's a very common occurrence. Um, uh, so if you are someone who, like you said, has or is rather is trying to follow these hour or sorry, 90 minutes, two hour, three hour long workouts. First of all, we've discussed this before about this whole like volume debate and all that kind of stuff, how you should set up your workout and whatever. Don't have to hand what podcast they're on, but they are all on site. So <clears throat> It's relevant. You can find it somewhere. You can just search up our stuff, right? So if you are doing this 90-minute, two-hour, three-hour workout, again, I would start questioning that and asking yourself how much of that is junk volume, right? And I think that's the, the first thing we should start on when we're discussing this, this whole topic is this, I suppose you would call it junk volume. That's what I call it. Um, but then also the amount of fluff in your program right mm-hmm. like everyone's always heard of this like 80 20 rule in terms of like you know 20 percent of what you're doing is getting you 80 percent of the return right so what we want to do first of all is focus on that 20 right well the first thing we need to do is look at the overall volume we are doing so say we're doing four days per week in the gym well actually we'll say we're doing six days per week in the gym and you're going oh it's just so hard time you know blah 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 well first of all i would look to just reduce the amount of days you're in the gym because that is the easiest win 
in my eyes. If you're going six days per week and you're on really time poor, like even if your workout only takes an hour, like that's still generally speaking, we'll say a half an hour or 15 minutes to half an hour either side of that, right? Because, you know, you have to get to the gym, you have to change, you have to shower, you have to do all your bits or whatever, you know? So an hour workout per day is realistically up to two hours of your day gone. Okay. When you, when you, when you taught up all the little bits, the little extra bits that you have to do as a result. Right. So by purely reducing your workout by one per week, you've gained back two hours roughly. Right. So that's an easy win there. And that's not to say that you have to just drop out all that volume, which is something we're going to talk about when we talk about like supersets and stuff like that. But if you are just going like every single day per week to the gym, then obviously there's an easy win. You don't need to be going every single, every single day, right? Because again, we want to address this from both sides of this spectrum. People who are in the gym and people who are kind of like, oh, I could never do a six-day per week program. It's like, you don't need to do a six-day per week program. Mm-hmm. Like doing a six-day per week program, perfectly fine, especially if you're like, I'm really gunning for it. My recovery, everything is on point. Um, and you only have, that's your, literally your only stressor in life, but that's not most people's cases, right? So reduce the number of days you are working out. It's a really easy win. It's not that hard. Like, to be honest, most people, they only need to be in the gym three to four days per week for most people's goals. And again, this comes back down to that kind of 80-20 rule. Most people are focusing on the the 80%. That's maybe getting them 20% extra on top of their thing, on top of their baseline, right? And this is the the next thing. So if you've reduced your days, you're kind of like, okay, that's fine. I I don't need to go six days. I'm going to modify my program so I'm only going four days. It's five days maybe, whatever, right? You do that. But then you actually have to look at your workouts themselves. Like what is the actual goal that you are trying to, or what's the adaptation you're trying to elicit from this workout? Do that for each exercise that's in your workout. And the first thing you need to do with that is address or identify where's the junk coming from? Like, first of all, there's junk volume, right? And that's just doing excessive amounts of sets. Like you see, like, again, like in the research, you know, you see people doing like 45 sets, per week and stuff like that. It's like, right, that's fine. Like, that's perfectly cool. We need to study stuff like that because we need that information. But like 45 sets per week, like if you can't get it, if you need 45 sets per week to elicit an adaptation, like I would question how hard, quote unquote, you are training, right? Because if you need 45 sets, like, and I'm sure there are people out there, I'm not, I'm not questioning the fact that, you know, maybe people do need way more volume like there's outliers all over the continuum right but if you need that i would be questioning how intensely and i don't mean like percentage of your one rm like how intensely you are training each set right so you look at your your exercise your sorry your training plan you look at what exercises are just kind of in there for fluff like you were talking gary before you were saying like you know, calves, like some people, they're just, the calves are not going to grow. So do they just drop it out? So would that be your first starting point? If you're going, right, we're looking at the workout itself. We're, we're, we're kind of redesigning our thought process. I thought I had to go six days per week for an hour and a half each session. Maybe I don't need to go six days. I'm going to reevaluate my entire approach. 
right? So we've got the buy-in, right? They're going, I want to do four days per week now because that opens up a huge amount of time in my overall week, right? So we're looking at the workouts they're doing currently. Is the first place you start the, the amount of exercises they're doing, the sets they're doing, the, the different muscles they're targeting? Like, where do you start with this person, with this individual? Yeah, so like, like with everyone, like in a coaching context, like your first, your first like priority is that kind of needs analysis. So like asking, right, based on this person's goal, what are the things that they really need to move towards that goal? Okay, so that's always like question one. And then like from there, I would start to be, like before using any other strategies that we're going to talk about, I'd focus on trimming down the workout or, or workouts. So trimming off the edges of the workout that you don't think are giving you a significant return investment for that goal because you'll have already run through that based on the needs analysis. So for example, one of the things that you'll see if you open up like a bodybuilding, a bodybuilding magazine or go to bodybuilding.com or, you know, go to anywhere where you'll get like kind of conventional. On that, right. Bodybuilding.com started in Boise. Right? I know. <laughs> it's actually pretty cool because they sponsor all these like little like outdoor gyms all over the place. It's pretty cool. Anyway, do go on. Yeah. This isn't hating on bodybuilding.com either because there's good stuff on there and that's where a lot of the evidence-based community initially came out of so those forums exactly those forums were good but anyway um like so you, you'll see a lot of programs you have six day like bodybuilding program by kai green or whatever and you look at you look at the exercises that are included and you could have maybe three rear delta exercises per week for like four sets each like that to me is where i would start trimming i'd be like all right do, do you really need to train your rear delts i mean like it might be useful for some people in some context but if you're doing any sort of rolling exercise or a pull down exercise, you're training your rear delts. Okay. Those muscles are being trained. So like that wouldn't be like the first order of priority for me um, or for most of the people that I would coach. So I'd start there by saying, all right, let's trim off that exercise. You might move on then to, all right, you look at their quote unquote core workouts and you see that they're doing four different exercises for abs and you ask them, you know, right, right. You know, these exercises can be useful, but what are you really trying to achieve? And, you know, they say, oh, I just want to have, you know, a toned stomach. You know, then we could start to have that conversation and say, all right, that's, that's probably not necessary because like, this is going to be primarily determined by your body fat levels. These exercises might make a slight difference and maybe we'll keep in one or two um, to develop strength in that area. And again, you start to trim there. Um, same thing for like, I think females in particular end up doing a lot of stuff that they don't really need to be doing because like, like some, some girls generally aren't that interested in like having big arms, but they might still find a bodybuilding program that online that has lots of arm exercises or lots of, I don't know, trap exercises. So again, it, like it's not, it's not that you need to train differently because you're a man or a woman, but it's about asking yourself what your goal is and then trimming off the stuff that just doesn't really matter to you. You know, you might find that you have a body part that responds particularly well to lower volumes of training. Like for example, some people just kind of, have big upper traps they might grow purely from doing rows purely from doing their deadlifts and stuff so for you to add in a couple of additional shrugging exercises like it might be useful if you're really trying to squeeze out every last one percent but don't feel that you need to train them um, and i think that is a big uh, that's a big part of this is that when people get into training particularly when they're in, invested in like the hypertrophy side of things and muscle building they feel like they need to train everything especially in isolation like some people never need to do a glute specific exercise because they're, let's say squats or deadlifts 
will just take care of it. Their leg presses might take care of it. Um, on the other hand, some people might find that that primarily leads to growth in their thighs, but not their glutes. So again, it does come down to that individual goal setting. So that's where I would start. I'd reduce the exercises that you feel may not be giving you the best bang for your buck. And that's not just about discarding things based on goals either. It's also about discarding things that maybe you just find you're not putting that much effort into. And, and I see this a lot with people who do kind of the classic bro split where you do one body part per workout, let's say like their first, their first couple of exercises, let's say their first two exercises, you know, they're really, really putting effort into, you know, their form is tight. They're really focusing on everything they're trying to do. They're getting close to failure, but then they just have these few exercises added on at the end that they're kind of, you know, they're going through the motions, you're sweating, but you're never really getting your failure. The weights are far below what you'd normally lift. Um, and they're kind of just there as almost like a ritual it's like this path dependence where you've always done it so you're going to do it now so why would you take it away um so i would do that as well i would start to peel back the exercises to, to the ones that i'm really getting the most out of so for example i might do a something like a a, a bench press and so and one fly variation for chest which is you know taking the chest through most of its range of motion most of its range of motion challenging a lot it a lot but i don't then need to do a fly variation at every angle or i don't need to do like dumbbell flies as well as cable flies like it might be appropriate but if you can trim it down i think that's a good starting point so so that's where i would start anyway yeah and just on that because i know someone's going to be listening to this um, <laughs> oh, okay yeah i'll definitely trim down yeah leg day <laughs> no <laughs> good luck <laughs> later right bench press day yeah actually let's do four of those uh, so like obviously that's not what we're saying like so obviously again like you can do that obviously like if you want i'm not here to stop you do whatever you want um but if you're looking for a more well-rounded overall well-structured program you know yourself that that's not going to be the best idea right so you want to look at your overall physique your overall strength maybe your overall deficits in strength and then allocate volume or exercises accordingly right again depending on your overall goals like you see this a lot in sports as well where they will kind of like follow a bodybuilding type program and they're doing a lot of exercises that are almost counter to their sport like they'll i don't know it'll be a sport that'll be i don't know determined by having a, a lighter lower body and they'll be banging out their squats in really high volume, leg presses, leg curls, leg extensions, RDLs, whatever, in an effort by the looks of the program to get their legs bigger. And it's like, well, this is counter to your sport, right? So you have to make the decision, I suppose. You have to make that consciously. Like that's, that's something that you're okay with. Like don't go spend six months doing that, get bigger legs, and then go, oh, going to the gym is shit for my sport because, you know, like I went to the gym for six months and I got shitter at my sport. And it's like, yeah, because you allocated volume not in accordance with your actual goals, right? So that's what we're saying to do. Like actually take a step back, look at what you're actually trying to achieve and then allocate volume accordingly. And like Gary was saying, like, you know, maybe you are, a female. I know we called you girls, which is really disgusting and misogynistic and infantilizing. <laughs> but uh, 
women, you know, maybe you don't want to have bigger arms, you know, I would still probably put some arm work in there at least some stage throughout your training career so you actually know how to use those muscles how to isolate those muscles what that feels like etc but at the same time it's like well if you're going to be doing like i don't know your chin-ups your lap pull downs your rows or whatever your your biceps are going to grow ever so slightly you know same with all your pressing variations or whatever your triceps are going to get hit you know so you still are getting work done for those muscle groups but I do like to have people put in some isolation work eventually just so they can feel it. Um, but yeah, so if you, if you are in that instance, like maybe you do go, okay, look, this, this program has X, Y, and Z for this muscle. I'm not really interested in getting that muscle massive. So I'm going to reduce the volume of work there or potentially change the exercise. So the proportion of tension is slightly altered. And what I mean by that is maybe you're doing squats and you are female and you're kind of like look i actually don't want them to build up my quads as much my quads i'm pretty happy with so maybe you do something more of like a, a low bar squat where you're using a little bit more glutes you know like obviously the quads are still getting stimulated you're not able to just turn them off but you've modified the exercise so that the the, the tension is more appropriate to your goals and i really want to say that um but it, it's allocated a little bit more appropriately you know so there are ways to do that again it might be a case of reducing the exercises it might be a case of moving the volume around a little bit and um, but but that's how i would do it as well so we've got the person they're going through it they're kind of like okay so yeah i've been following this bodybuilding split i got it from wherever and you're right i actually don't need 10 different exercises for rear delts right so they get that they go okay i'm just going to do get rid of all these extra ones and this is the one that i feel the most this is the one that you know i seem to get the biggest return on investment from and generally it, when you have that kind of approach it's going to be the more compound exercises like if you say that about like chest it's going to be stuff like you know your bench press or I know your incline bench press or whatever, right? It, it, generally, if you're going to cut away the fluff, you're going to be left with these more compound uh, exercises. That's not always the case. And like Gary said, you know, like there is going to be instances when you're kind of like, okay, yes, the bench press may be the most bang for my buck in terms of growing my chest, but I don't want to just never go through these ranges with my chest. So maybe a fly variation in there as well is going to be really beneficial right so you have that approach you're looking at your exercises you go yeah knock that one out knock that one out cool i've gotten rid of that so your overall volume your overall work has gone down because you're allocating overall volume a little bit more appropriately with first of all your your exercise selection right but we're still time poor gary so where do we go from this so we're, we're kind of go okay so i've dropped out x y and z exercises so i'm not doing all this this fluff exercises i'm basically focusing on the ones that i can slowly but surely progressively overload i get a good connection with that my body seems to respond to and overall your exercise selection seems to be rather on point and your overall let's say volume allocation seems to be overall on point for your goals right so we're at that stage what's the next one would you start bringing in supersetting or would you start bringing in we'll call them 
extended set sets or density boosting techniques like where, where do you go from here right so we're still the same person we've gone from six days we're down to four days and we're kind of going where, where do i go from now I've, I've picked my exercises more accordingly what's the next step yeah so if we're thinking about someone who has like a a hypertrophy or a muscle focused goal let's say so you're not a powerlifter because like i mean if you're a powerlifter that's sport you're an athlete you're in a different box to the, the person we're talking about you know you obviously have to satisfy the demands of your sport but for someone that is you know a general trainee someone looking to to build muscle that type of that type of goal then what i would start with is trying to find ways to improve the stimulus from the training that i'm, I'm already doing so before adding in like any fancy techniques i would start with trying to improve the quality of my training so that can mean a couple of different things like like one of the th the implications here might actually you know trigger some people because they're like oh no but my i'm emotionally attached like if you could move from let's say if you're if you do a barbell squat for your quads but you find that it's not really targeting your quads as much as it is your glutes and your adductors let's say and um, your quads just never get sore they never feel really feel like they're working a lot you're always leaning over quite a bit doesn't make you a bad person but it mightn't be the best exercise for your quads so i mean it could be the case that you actually get on much better when you do something like a hack squat. So if you were to do a hack squat variation where you can get into that deep knee flexion without your back or hip extensors being the limiting factor, then that might actually be a better option for you because you're, you're locked in, your, your, your th thigh muscles, your quads, your hamstrings are still gonna be working, your adductors and glutes will still be working, but you're locked in and you're making sure that the lower body is the limiting factor there. You know, And the fact that you don't have to hold that bar on your back, there's less complexity involved, you can isolate, even though you're not isolating anything, the muscles you want to target a little bit better. So in that case, like that, that's why you'll see so many, um, so many bodybuilders who care about trying to maximize the stimulus, like use a lot of machines. Like, you know, you'll see that with like, with let's say Jordan Peters, who's been, who's kind of changed his tra training philosophy over the last few years. One of the things he does more often now is uses machines that are well designed to maximize the stimulus within the session. The same with like Callum Raisin from the Muscle Mentees and what is it? Raisin Dick. Oh, Raisin Dick, that's his name. Um, and what's the other guy's name? Uh, I don't know, it doesn't matter. Uh, anyway, Lube, that's his name, Lube. Lube from the Luke. Muscle Mentees, what? Puke. Oh, Puke. <laughs> is oh. that it? But anyway, yeah, <laughs> you know, you'll see those guys using using machines as well and doing different things to improve the stimulus of the exercise that they're applying. And I think that's a really that's a really good strategy if you are someone who one has consistent access to the same equipment. Like that is a barrier for a lot of people, especially in Ireland. We don't we don't often have the gyms that you have in the UK and and in America, especially down here in Kerry. But you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's one way of doing things. Like if you find that there's a machine in your gym that just hammers your chest way better than a bench press, use that exercise if it's going to provide a more efficient stimulus. Same with things like rowing exercises in particular. Like a lot of people just don't get a very much stimulus on their, on their lats from doing barbell rows, especially the way that they do them. And if you, and because there's a lot of other muscles involved there, there's more fatigue. So if you find that there's a chest supported row variation in your gym that provides a, a really good stimulus to the back muscles, feel free to use it. Again, so, so, so exercise selection is definitely part of that. Uh, another part of that, of the, the quote unquote quality of your training, 
is finding ways to get closer to failure without, I guess, technical breakdown or using using things other than the target muscle. So if you're trying to use your chest, then you want to be using those muscles and not just coming down and let's say slapping the dumbbells and moving your back position and moving your scapula, you know, those different compensations that you'll see people um, people coming up with to move the weight. Same in things like a barbell row. If you're trying to train your lats, then you don't want lots of lots of jerking at the spine, lots of jerking at the arms, moving the hips, moving the knees. You want to minimize that stuff. So so the way that you lift your technique your intent definitely comes into it there as well it doesn't mean that it has to be totally perfect or that any deviation from normal is bad um, and it also doesn't mean that your perfect or perfect technique or the technique that feels like it works best for you it doesn't mean that that's the same as the one that it, for me you know and the, the the best example of that will be exercises like squats like you'll you'll see guys on instagram who have really short femurs and these really upright squats you know especially if you look at chinese weightlifters like their quads are getting hammered every rep and it looks perfect it looks almost like they're on a hack squat machine but for you with your big long your big long legs every time you do a squat you're leaning over it just doesn't feel the same for you so exercises are different between people and that's totally fine um so they're they're the they're the the first two and then i suppose like like i said trying to get closer to failure that in its in and of itself is a skill. Um, I think the the general kind of you know evidence based default point is like uh, failure bad, and then you have you know people on the other side of the spectrum that like um, oh it has to be to failure. So like you don't have to have this like dichotomy. You know you're you're allowed to go to failure and still recognize what the research says. You know like my, my own interpretation or, or stance currently would be that you know going quite close to failure is, is probably a good idea. Um, but most people don't really get there, even though they think they're training to failure a lot of the time, often they're not. And then the research would support that. Um, and that it's probably a good option to leave a rep or two in the tank. If you know how to go to failure most of the time. Um, and that the, the benefit between that point, like a rep from failure and failure is minimal, but there might be some more risk associated with going to failure more often, especially if you're doing multiple sets or you've got an injury history or you know that you break down or it's a, it's an exercise where the weights could fall off or whatever it is, you know? So, so you don't have to have this hard stance that like you must go to failure or you must not go to failure. But if you can find a way to get closer to that point, that's probably a good way of increasing the stimulus, especially when you're trying to reduce the number of sets that you can do. So if you normally do, four sets let's say and you leave two reps in the tank then you could reduce your time in the gym by doing two to three sets closer to failure because there's more of those really stimulating reps is that fair enough 100 and i think especially on this argument of training to failure like the people who say oh you should leave two to three reps in reserve or whatever use an rpe of seven or eight i'm like yeah you can say that because you know what failure actually is mm -hmm. right well, you would hope anyway, right? And you, it almost misses that kind of thing where, you know, everyone always does this, like and we're not immune to it either, where you kind of forget what it was like when you first got into the gym. You know, like you just didn't know what failure was. Like most people, like they could be training in the gym for 30 years and still not know what actual failure is. Like they might have achieved it once or twice on an exercise when they were hyped up on whatever new pre-workout with their their mates there with them kind of fucking oh come on come on you know so mo most people don't know what actual failure is most people just stop when it gets a little bit hard you know like they start feeling the muscles 
yeah, maybe the next rep I won't be able to get. So no, I'm not going to, I'm just going to cut it short. Right. And that, that for some people that could be like five, six, seven extra reps available to them. Right. And they're there thinking like, Oh, that was an RP nine or a, a rep. I had one rep in reserve there. And it's like, no, you, you actually had seven reps in reserve. Yeah. You know? So that's unfortunately the most, the majority of people, well, the majority of people you see in commercial gyms anyway, right? So training, like you said, it is a skill. Training closer to failure, first of all, makes your sets more effective, right? I mean, I said it earlier on, like the, the people they were doing like these 45 sets per week. I'm like, and I would question how intensely you are actually training each of those sets, you know? And that's the, that's the first thing, like you the first thing you need to have is your reps need to look good. Your reps need to, and again, look good for you as an individual, like they're, they're targeting the muscles you're trying to target. You're, you're targeting the muscles you're trying to target and you're actually like doing the exercise in a safe, effective manner. Right? So your rep is the first thing you have to maximize the rep, right? The next thing then is you have to maximize the set before you discuss anything else, the amount of volume you're doing, your set rep schemes, whatever, right? So pick a rep scheme, whatever. That set of those rep schemes is the next variable after you've maximized the individual rep. It's not like the eight reps, the six reps, the 12 reps or whatever. It's the set as it's whole. That doesn't mean that we're, I'm not saying you have to go to failure on that, like complete an absolute failure. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you have to know how that set should feel with two to three reps in reserve, you know? And then you can make the educated choice every so often to go closer to failure when it's more appropriate, you know? For example, like maybe you know, okay, well, my normal workout takes an hour. Today I only have 40 minutes, right? So you can use what we're saying to do this exact same thing. Your normal workout takes an hour, you have 40 minutes today. So you're going, okay, so maybe I'm gonna take my sets a little bit closer to failure i'm going to maybe reduce the amount of sets that i'm doing because those sets that i'm doing are again closer to failure so you're getting more of those stimulating reps or whatever you want to call them and as a result you know you can do afford to do less volume because this this is the thing you see all the time we've discussed it before where people will talk about how much volume they're doing or certain uh, training methodologies like you know like the, the one that's kind of in, in vogue now a lot of the time is that reverse pyramid training you know where it's like you hit a heavy set and then you do maybe one to three back down sets right and that heavy set is as close to failure maybe in some cases two reps away from failure but either way you're really hammering like you're going as close to failure as you can as an individual handle consistently and then the next sets are again closer to failure, right? And people will talk about that going like, oh, is this a better method? Is this a better method? I'm like, it's a completely irrelevant question if I don't know that you can actually train close to failure. Like if you're just not used to doing five sets of 12, you know, and like that's a that's a, a big amount of volume, that means that you're able to keep that consistency across that five sets of 12. So those sets are not gonna be close to failure. They might be challenging for sure, but doing that amount of volume presumably with extra work afterwards, like you're not going to be training really, really close to failure unless you're 
I don't know, maybe taking five, ten minutes break in between each set. Yeah, you know? If you're doing a, a quote-unquote normal workout and you're doing five sets of 12, like those sets are not close to failure. You know, maybe the last one is because you're fatigued, you know? So if you're coming from that perspective and you're going, oh, should I be training in this reverse pyramid style training? It's like, the, the question is almost irrelevant. Like you have to, first of all, start understanding how to train closer and closer to failure, you know? Like maybe you go, before you just transition straight into that, you go, I'm going to do three sets of 12. And those three sets of 12 are that little bit closer to failure. You know, they're more again, intense, not intense in terms of percentage one RM, in terms of the effort that you're putting in, you know, they they have a, a higher RPE or a lower reps in reserve, whatever, you know? Um, so you have to start thinking about that when you discuss this whole overall volume discussion and how you can do that. But yeah, I agree. So if we take our sets closer to failure, that allows us to do less volume and get a significant stimulus right but we're talking about obviously taking things closer to failure in terms of the the set itself however there are other ways to make those sets harder i don't even know what you would say it will call them ex extending the sets right yeah, yeah. You know, and you can do this a number of ways. So first of all, obviously we have what we've been discussing, which is train closer to failure, right? And that's again, caveat, we're not saying just fucking technical breakdown, be stupid with your, your, your training and just go, yeah, YOLO, I'm just going to go to an absolute failure on this first set, drain myself for the rest of the workout and I'm done, right? That's obviously not what we're saying, right? but getting that little bit closer to failure than you're used to if you are trying to lower your overall volume of work. Cool, right? We've also already got rid of all the fluff exercises, all the, the extra, the junk, right? But you can also do a few things to extend your sets, right? And this is what you were kind of touching on when you were talking about uh, Callum Raisendick and Puke. Uh, you know, you can do stuff like use exercises that are more appropriate right so you're getting a better stimulus for the amount of time that you're in the gym for right so each set that you're doing it's not oh yeah that exercise was really challenging in the bottom position but you know three quarters of the exercise was really easy right you're choosing exercises that are first of all like we discussed first of all more appropriate in terms of allocating volume for muscles you want to train, but also more appropriate in terms of, you know, targeting the, the musculature that you want to train, targeting the, the qualities you want to train, whatever it is, right? So you're choosing more effective exercises. And this could take the form of, you know, choosing machines, or it could take the form of something like, you know, banding an exercise, you know, so that the, the resistance profile of the exercise more closely matches that strength profile of the muscle you're trying to target or the the movement that you're trying to target um so is is that our next step we start going to these kind of extended sets because there's a number of ways we can go into this kind of extended set thing so the first one is like you know like banding an exercise like obviously appropriately banding an exercise like you're not trying to make exercises harder in the position they're already harder in like you're trying to make exercises more stimulatory through their entire contractile range would that be right 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. And like you, you could call that an, a, a way of extending the set in, in a way because essentially what you're you're making sure that all of that range of motion and the way the the range through which those muscles are working that they're all getting they I say they but you know what I mean they're all getting close to the point of failure as opposed to just one point in the repetition. Mm-hmm. So like if you were to take something like I don't know, let's take that hack squat example again. If we just use a hack squat because it's a simple one. Sometimes what you might do is you do a hack squat or even a leg press variation that is really hard at the bottom, but the top is just really easy. You know, there's pretty much no stimulus there. It's just not very challenging. Okay. And that's kind of, that's normal and expected because like the way in which those forces are acting on your body, the moment, the moment arms are increasing to the joints involved as you go to the bottom. Okay. So basically it gets more challenging as you go to the bottom. So if you can just, if you can use a bit of um, band tension or tubing, to essentially offload that bottom position a little bit, then what you can do is even out the challenge throughout the range of motion. So you just make it that bit more difficult throughout the range. And that might have enough of an effect on the overall stimulus to allow, to allow you to get more out of that set. Because instead of you just coming to the bottom on one rep and just being like, oh, that was too hard, and then you're done. You know, you see that happen a lot on hack squats where people get to the bottom and then they just fail because they can't go any further. Um, whereas if there was that little bit of band tension, they could have finished that rep and maybe got the next one, you know, because you're, you just have that bit more in the tank in the, at the top position. So that's definitely a way that can help. And that's already built into a lot of machines. Like you'll, you'll notice this if you go to, if you go to a really well-equipped gym and you use their leg extension, like let's say it's like a Cybex leg extension or something like that, and you use it, you find that it's just much harder than normal but hard, hard in a way that almost feels like really smooth and comfortable because it's, it's appropriately challenging at each point in the rep. Whereas if you go to your local like GA gym, let's say, and you know you've got that plate-loaded leg extension, um, it's not challenging at all at the bottom and then really hard at the top. So you just fail as soon as you can't get into that top part of the range of motion. So they're the types of things that we're talking about. And that's definitely not as, um, as black and white and easily applicable, I think, on an individual level, just because... People sometimes see bands being used and they're like, oh, I'm going to ban every exercise. And some of them don't, don't actually make sense. And you need to consider like how much band tension relative to the weight that you're using to get the most out of it. But it's definitely something to consider. Um, and it's definitely something to consider as it relates to machines as well. You know, if you think that one machine feels particularly good, there might be a very good reason for that. It could be the way the resistance is being applied. So that might be a good option for you. 100%. And again, like this, this, this is something that you have to, you have to know a little bit more so that you can apply appropriately, you know, like you're not just banding every single exercise. Also, you're not just like Gary was saying like that uh, hack squat. It's not just like that kind of reverse banding it. Like maybe the, the bottom position is perfectly fine. It's not that that's the case. It's just that the top position is really easy, you know, and you'll see this on like, say a, a leg press, you know, like you'll get to that bottom position where like your knees are closer to your chest and then you extend your, it's really hard there and you extend your legs and it's half the range is really easy. You know, like it's, it's, it's nothing, you know, you have to load up 400, 500 kilos and it's just basically just getting that last little bit of terminal knee extension. It's like, all right, like, first of all, we're talking about reducing the time in the gym. And if you have to load up 500 kilos onto that leg press, like I'd rather just slap a band on it, two bands yeah. on it. You know, and that literally, okay, cool, boom, half the weight. You know, it's much more, 
appropriate, right? So even though it seems like, you know, banding an exercise or setting up a band or whatever is going to increase your time in the gym, and that's what we're talking about, the opposite of doing, um, it actually makes, first of all, your sets more effective. Obviously, if you know what you're doing with the bands, but also usually it's going to reduce the load you have to use on these exercises. So therefore you're spending less time loading weights. You know, it's a, it's a win-win, you know, um, but maybe you're not really certain of that. You don't really know what you're doing with the bands. So there are other methods, right? And we've already talked of one, which is like, like that training closer to failure, but also you can essentially train past failure right because generally what people will do is they'll fail in the the concentric range but they will actually have more in the tank in terms of the eccentric range right so what you can do is like that kind of get a spotter to help you which is essentially what the bands are doing but get a spotter to help you get that concentric range completed you know maybe they just give you that little you're in the hack squat, like Gary was saying, you're in the hack squat, they give you that little bit of a, a push out of the bottom position, you finish the rep, you then control again the eccentric portion, they give you that little push out of the bottom, again, you control that eccentric portion, maybe you get three to five extra reps that way, right? You're essentially overloading that kind of eccentric portion. Now, most people train the eccentric portion, like that lowering portion of the lift, like they like it's not even part of the lift they literally just go like just relax themselves like completely just let the weight fall right which is not how you're supposed to train you're supposed to train with a controlled eccentric that doesn't mean you have to use a tempo although we generally recommend using some sort of tempo when we're looking to control stuff um even if it is just a one second like you're, you're you're going i'm going to control this right you should be controlling the eccentric um so when you're doing your kind of eccentric overloading, which is effectively what we're talking about here, you know, getting a spotter to help you with a, a few of the concentric reps and then getting more overload on that eccentric. That allows you to train, again, essentially past failure, which makes those sets, I'm going to say, more effective. Like, obviously, this is not a method that you want to just abuse and use on every single set. We're talking about being as time efficient with your exercises as possible. So if you are doing something like this, like it's going to mean that you have reduced volume. Like you're not going to be able to do eccentrically overloaded reps. And as I said before, most people don't understand what failure actually is. So for them, like that's, this is a way more advanced technique than you would need to use. Right. So, um, I can't remember what I was saying. Oh yes. Yeah. So if you are using those kind of eccentrically overloaded reps, you know, with a, with a spotter, like you have to be using them appropriately. Like you're not just doing your, your 45 sets per week and 40 of those sets are, you know, spotter health eccentrically overloaded. Right. And obviously we're also not saying that the spotter should be doing all the work because this is what you'll also see on this. Like they will get nowhere near concentric failure and they'll ask the spotter to do all the work. Like the spotter should just be helping you just that little touch. You know, like maybe they do 20% max of the work. Like you should still be able to use some muscular contraction to get that concentric portion moving, right? Like they're not, if you're on the bench press, like they're not doing, I don't know, 120 kilo upright row just so you can get three extra eccentrically overlo overloaded reps. Like that's, 
That's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about you doing the majority of the work and they're just giving that little two-finger touch to help it get up a little bit more and then you can control the eccentric a little bit more, right? So that is another way, not only training closer to failure, training past failure, right? And using an eccentric overload isn't the only way you can do this. You can also do it with something like a, a rest-pause method, you know, where you do a couple of reps, pause, rest, you know, do a couple of reps, pause, rest, do a couple of reps, pause, like rest, and then keep going like that until you get again closer and closer to failure, right? And essentially all you're doing is taking these micro rests so that you can effectively get more volume in. So without the rests, you might get eight reps, but you do five reps, take a little break, you get two more, take a little break, two more, take a little break. And as a result, you're able to get maybe, we'll say 12 reps, right? So you've effectively got four more reps past where your actual failure point is. Now, there are many ways you can do rest pause. Like people kind of have different methods in their head in terms of the rep schemes that are used. And you will find certain rep schemes are more appropriate for you as an individual like and again obviously depending on your goals because like rest pause is essentially like that kind of cluster reps as well like you can use it like the again like there's this kind of continuum of it but all it's doing is extending the steps by or extending the sets by not going quite to failure on the actual individual like one block of, of reps and you're basically taking a little break in between and then hitting out a, a cluster of other reps, a little break in between, cluster of other reps, right? So effectively, you're able to accumulate more volume overall. This could, again, be a lower rep range. Like you could be doing three reps or you could literally be doing one rep, take a break, one rep, take a break. And you could get something that is your, your three RM, your three rep max or roughly that. And you could effectively get five reps with it, you know? So you're able to train with, you know, a heavier weight, an overall heavier stimulus and get more effective reps in that way. So there's a number of ways you can do it, but effectively that's what we're saying. Do you mind that on that, Gary? Um, I don't think so. Like one of the ways I actually like to put this into practice, because I use this quite a bit with clients, I just say like, let's say one by rest pause at 20 reps. And, and then what I'll say in the comments is like, all right, choose like your roughly your 12, 12 to 14 rep max around that so choose a weight that you might be able to get 12 reps with um take it pretty much to failure get your 12 rest for like five to ten seconds or just a couple of breaths go again you know you might get three or four you know let's say you get four you're now at 16 and then you have to get four more to get to 20 so just putting like a, a total rep target on it put the the rep max number like let's say like 50 to 70 percent of your total rep target and then work it in like that. And anytime I am programming that, I'll generally do like one set of that first. Like I wouldn't just be like, oh yeah, do four sets of 20 on rest balls because you will be hammered, all right? So the name of the game here in this podcast is efficiency. Like, so if you do want to try that, like that, that's definitely a good strategy to start off with one set because essentially what you are doing there, like more mechanistically is you're taking one of your sets of 12 to failure and then you're carrying that fatigue that you've got from that set over into the next two sets of three to four reps, let's say. So rather than having those reps at the beginning of the set that you normally have to bring you to the point of fatigue, you're basically taking that out of the equation and continuing to, to work under that fatigue. So 
when you are working with lighter weights, like let's say your 15 to 20 rep max, you essentially have to work through all of those reps to get to the point where you have enough like motor unit recruitment to get a good hypertrophy response. So you need to get tension on pretty much all the fibers involved. And basically what you're doing is skipping a couple of steps when you use that rest pause strategy. And it's also like, you know, more, you're getting more metabolic stress, et cetera. And that's all kind of built in, but there's definitely reasons to believe that it is a good strategy. Um, and there, there's evidence to support it as well. But I would just say that use it sparingly rather than just replacing all your normal sets with rest pause sets. Cause you'll be a, a sore, a sore boy. Yeah. And also this, Again, like obviously we're we're giving you a lot of different methods here, but this depends on like where you are as a trainee. Like again, mm. like I said, like if you don't know where failure is, if you're literally your failure is, you know, this, oh, I got a little bit of burn in the muscle and then you stop. It's like that's like rest pause is not going to be appropriate for you. You know, like you're gonna use your, your twenty rep max and effectively just take rests in between when you should have actually been just doing twenty straight reps. Yeah. Because you don't know where failure actually is. You don't know how to actually get close to that, you know? And even though Gary's saying there, like you use somewhere around your, your 12 to, to 14 rep max, you know, roughly when he's doing it there. Like even then it's like, you know, you're, you're kind of with a 12 to 14 rep, like especially the, the higher reps, like it's always yeah. like, you're kind of like, maybe I could get a little bit, one more, and maybe, you know, depending on, um, did I have enough carbs today? Like, how's the fatigue overall? You know, so it's always with those higher reps, it's a little bit easier to get up. So if you're using that rest pause method, you know, you don't want to be going, I am going to do like, you know, my three rep max, and then try to get a few extra reps by taking a mini pause. And like, that's, it's going to be a recipe for disaster, you know? And also, as Gary said, like, if you are using these extended set techniques like you have to look at them appropriately and again like what we're trying to do is reduce the amount of time we're in the gym so you wouldn't be doing this super high volume and this super extended set setup you know so or you could effectively pick four exercises that are really good for you as an individual and just do four rest pause sets you know and that literally going to take you maybe what 30 minutes, 30 yeah. fucking grueling minutes in the gym. You did four, quote unquote, four sets. But those four sets were like past the point of failure, you know? So again, that could be a way that you literally go, I'm going, I only have 30 minutes. I want to absolutely hammer myself in those 30 minutes and get the most effective stimulus that I can possibly get. You know, maybe you are going on holiday this week and you only can do two sessions and you're like i want to make re two really really effective sessions and you kind of go i'm going to do a rest pause four sets lower body and a rest pause four sets upper body like those two days and you go boom there i got my two sessions in they were absolutely grueling my recovery is definitely taking a hit but i know i'm on holiday the week after and i've literally those sessions only took 30 30 minutes and you know they, they did the job you know, so <clears throat> again, you have to look at this in the overall continuum of like what is actually recoverable from and like what are you actually trying to achieve, right? So I had something next to say. Yeah, so effectively what you're doing there is you're, you're improving your ability to go past failure. You know, you're, you're making your individual sets more effective right but maybe you are an individual that 
isn't able to kind of push past failure you know like you're kind of like oh like i'm i'm not really i'm not really able for that <clears throat> you know you, you have to be a certain have certain mentality to be able to do that so maybe that's not for you maybe you aren't able to bring that kind of intensity to a single set right that doesn't mean you're you're left and you're gone okay look your workouts are always going to be long you can also do stuff that are aimed at improving or rather yeah clustering more so the density of the workout you are doing and there's a there's thousands of ways you can do this but effectively what you're trying to do is get more work done per unit of time right and obviously those intensity boosting techniques that we were talking about there which are like you know training closer to failure eccentric overload you know the rest pause that kind of stuff like or banding or getting a spotter or whatever right all of those things are improving the amount of work you're doing per unit of time by essentially making you have to do less sets for more stimulus right but you can also do more sets per, per given unit of time and what i mean by this is maybe you normally take 90 seconds break in between every set you know like a method of reducing your time in the gym would be just reducing that to 60 seconds right now you have to obviously caution yourself with that and realize that this is probably going to accumulate more fatigue per unit of time and you know if you go all out on that first set and you only give yourself 60 seconds to recover before you head into your next set like you will still be under recovered heading into that next set and as a result, probably have to use a lowered weight, which is maybe going to give you a lowered stimulus. However, you can also argue that those reps that you do in that fatigue state are maybe a little bit more effective because essentially you, you kind of get to a stage where your, your rest periods are lowered and you're almost into this rest pause type scenario, you know? And however, even speaking with that, like you have to, choose an appropriate weight like you don't want to just choose an appropriate or choose a weight that the first set is really really easy because you know yourself i'm only going to give myself 45 seconds break so i'm going to choose an easy set and effectively only make the the third set i'm doing or whatever the last set i'm doing hard right so you don't want to do that necessarily again completely valid if you do but i would rather see you train a little bit heavier and even though that's going to reduce probably the amount of reps you do in subsequent sets, like choose something that is heavy for that first set. And maybe you drop off two or three reps for the next set because you've lowered the rest period. Again, maybe you drop off the four to five reps for the, the final set that you're doing. Like an easy way then to get better is just to add more reps as you get better at like sticking to that 60 second rest interval you know you're like okay well i know the next set i only got eight last week so i'm going to try get nine you know and on the third set i got five i'm going to try get six you know you can slowly start building the reps back up and again progressively overloading that way again being more time effective density boosting is another method but you just have to use it appropriately and understand that there's probably going to be more metabolic fatigue than effectively you're maximizing metabolic fatigue rather than mechanical tension and we know mechanical tension is probably the biggest contributor to muscle hypertrophy like out there right so if you are using these density boosting techniques like you have to 
have to look at it through the the right lens right and there's a number of ways we can do this firstly the the method and we haven't talked about it yet that i most prefer is just supersetting things right and that's just a method of improving the, the density of the work that you do in the gym right and again like we were saying earlier on with the individual who's gone from six days to four days so if that individual was used to doing a, a legs push pull workout legs push pull legs push pull that's their their general week like we could literally bring that to something like uh, an upper lower split right that would be a very easy transition for that individual to make so their their leg days still say the same right and then their upper body days we kind of superset the the push muscles and the the pull muscles right really simple superset as a, as a result of training this kind of antagonistic muscles like the the push and pull uh, together like you can kind of go okay so i can actually take a slightly lowered uh, rest period because i'm training different muscles so even though i even though like obviously your, your body is one whole unit like just because you trained one muscle doesn't mean that your entire body hasn't got some sort of like systemic fatigue but having said that training your chest isn't generally going to fatigue your back a huge amount right even though obviously it is still used and you are getting this kind of systemic fatigue indicators like you know your your brain potentially uh does uh identify lactate in the bloodstream and kind of go okay well let's this just contributes to fatigue you know um so there there is that I personally like supersets. They're the easiest method for getting more density per unit of time, right? I, I superset my like I'm effect. I effectively do that lower upper split four days per week, and and that's how I maximize my time in the gym. That's why I'm spending like four hours in the gym, and I'm getting a, a lower body day and an upper body day, uh, and I'm maximizing my time per unit of time in the gym by by supersetting my push and pull muscles, right? So with supersets, Gary, do you, would that be something that you would use with clients that are time poor? Would you superset things? And then would you superset lower body training? Because that's also a big thing where kind of, there's a lot of carryover, say the like lower back has to be factored into things. So what are your thoughts there? Yeah, like I do like, I do like supersets, especially kind of towards the end of a workout. Like generally what's something about what, one of the, the in a program i might program it would look like let's say a co- the first two exercises maybe would be more strength focused like generally kind of lower rep like more joints involved let's say it was something like a squat generally not going to superset something like that because there's a greater kind of systemic effect okay so even your like your cardiorespiratory system is fatigued you know all of the other muscles that are responsible for holding that weight there's going to be some fatigue there so you want to be able to recover from that so generally i wouldn't be using supersets in that context but later in the workout maybe it might be the case that someone's doing a leg extension and a leg curl that's a perfect you know perfect pair of exercises to superset you know might it be the case that because your hamstrings are so pumped that you don't get it's harder to get into knee extension you know because you feel a bit tighter you got that pump like maybe but I, i don't think that's going to affect your outcomes too much you could even argue that you know, the fact that you have that pump adds extra resistance against the opposite movement. So there you go, you know, <laughs> fighting your own body. 
but but yeah, no, I really wouldn't. I wouldn't stress too much about that. I think they're good exercises to superset. Like you could even make the case for doing for supersetting something like let's say a lunge or a leg press variation with your hamstring curls. Like if you were doing something like that, um, or again, like if you were doing calves at the end of the workout, you could superset that with leg extension. So you definitely have options with the lower body. I would just be a little bit more conservative when it comes to supersets because like you're not going to superset leg presses and squats like in general unless unless you're just doing like super light lightweight work um, rather than heavy lifting generally you're not going to do that um, as for the upper body like i think you have a lot more you definitely have a lot more options especially if you're doing that type of split like yourself where you're doing an upper lower split you know you on your upper days you could superset any pressing variations with any rowing or pull down variations again it might be the case that your let's say your bench press or your overhead press is your first exercise and you're like i really want to focus on this maximizing strength in that case i would leave that on its own and then superset the exercises that i'm maybe less emotionally attached to <laughs> or i have less of a goal uh, as it relates to strength for so um so yeah there's definitely options there like i i use this a lot like i'll superset things like chin-up variations or pull-down variations with any sort of pressing movement once once your your cardiorespiratory fitness is good you'll be fine and that might actually tell you that you might need to do a bit more cardio you know on the side because some people do find that you'll see when they do a superset their strength drops off loads just because once they've done that first exercise they're super fatigued and you see this with people on instagram you know they do anything over a set of six and they're on the floor like dying afterwards it's like all right cardio kills your gains something something but it might actually help your training so um, and yeah, you could even make the case as well that when you're doing those types of supersets, if it's not affecting your strength, there might actually be an additional benefit there of you getting kind of aerobic adaptations because you're keeping your heart rate elevated for a longer period of time. So there could be additional benefits there um, as well. So, so yeah, I do, I do like them. Ideally, antagonistic muscle groups. So muscle groups that are, you know, there's not as much of a carryover. And for more strength-focused people, try to keep your more strength-focused exercises um, on their own. That would be more like you're saying like obviously that antagonistic pairing allows you to get more overall work done but you could also use it in terms of using the same muscle group to essentially mm -hmm. end the set like we were saying like you could go from something like a, a bench press you know and you hit up a, i don't know an eight eight rep max you know you literally you're going close to failure on that right but your chest isn't completely done now you could use something like a, a drop set we haven't talked about that yet you know that's a that is potentially a valid method of essentially extending the set you know you maybe drop off some of the weight you reduce it by 10 to 20 percent and hit as many reps as you can reduce it 10 20 percent hit as many reps as you can and keep doing that until you literally hit like complete failure you know that is essentially extending the set we didn't talk about it then but you could also do something like we're talking about the supersets here use another exercise that is hitting the same muscle group and essentially extend the set, like superset the two exercises together and essentially extend the set that way. So you could do something like really high demand, a bench press, and you could go straight into something like a fly. You know, people really like this for say, well, I don't know, dumbbell pressing is really appropriate for this. You know, you get like a, an inclined dumbbell bench press, you know, you literally hitting your your 12 rep max on that like you're literally grinding out that last rep you know you're getting really close to failure and then you use something like a an incline dumbbell fly both 
effectively stretching out the chest to an extent and also getting more metabolic fatigue into that into the chest then as well so you're essentially getting more overall volume for that muscle group but as we said with like any of those extending set things like that's not something that you would do for three five sets of an exercise it's not something that you would do for lots of volume you know if you're going to extend the set you're going to use a, a superset of the same exercise or the same muscle group effectively you should be thinking of that as extending the set and as a result volume is going to be lower because like that's the whole point of extending the set you want to extend the set so the the set itself is more effective so you don't need more volume because again we're trying to be more time efficient here and also if you need to extend every single set that you do in the gym then again i'm i'm start questioning why do you need so much volume to get an appropriate stimulus and again there's definitely people out there that do the odds that you are one of them quite low yeah like and this this kind of i guess ties in with like another point that i wanted to make in relation to like when people start to get into the kind of you know evidence-based fitness side of things they look for like the specific answers that come from the research and like once you get them it's like all right that's how you do training that's it you know all those bros in the gym doing rest pause <laughs> idiots stupid people with bands dumb machines dumb you know <laughs> but that but that is the way people sometimes think it's like all right i'm just going to use the evidence and okay it says 10 to 20 sets so obviously that means 20 clearly because 20 is bigger than 10 <laughs> uh, periodization, yeah. yeah you've got it you've got to do it three days per week um this exercise order or whatever you know people look to, to the evidence for specific answers as opposed to looking to the evidence for information on like what might not be useful like, like that's the kind of the way i would read the strength conditioning or like hypertrophy, hypertrophy focused research is trying to tell me like all right what's what's most likely to not be a good idea as opposed to looking for some sort of specific prescription because what you have to realize with research is that you're always just getting an average like that's what you're getting you're getting an average result but your client is not average you're like your client or you listening to this you're somewhere on that spectrum and you could be the outlier at the top or you could be the outlier at the bottom. And you just don't know that until you actually start to train and put these things into practice. So never hold yourself to like these general recommendations. Like that's why we don't give like very specific like recommendations for macronutrients. Like, Oh, you have to have four grams of carbs, kilo body weight. That's it. You know, it, it, that's just not really the way things work in the real world. And I think this podcast is like particularly important for that because we're talking about how you can fit training in. And like, if you come at this with a time constraint and think, but I've got to do the evidence-based thing, you're actually just like misinterpreting like what the training process is about. Because the training process is about taking you from where you are now, applying some sort of stimulus, getting an adaptation, and then changing the stimulus when you're no longer getting that adaptation. It's not about like applying the program to you. And I think, that's sort of ironic in a sense because like a lot of the a lot of people who are into the you know evidence-based perspective on fitness often say that you know that it's about fitting the program to the person but then in practice it ends up being like here are our principles these are the principles of training and i wish it was that black and white but but it's just not so don't feel like you're doing silly things by applying these principles like you're like drop sets do not make you 
an idiot because I know that people will listen to this and be like, ah, that's bro science, you know, that's just silly bro science, rest, pause, drop sets, etc. But these are all just tools in the toolbox that change the training stimulus. And if you can start to view it as just a stimulus and become like less, I guess, attached to specific methods, I think it makes things much easier, especially when it comes to to things like a time constraints. Like like the next thing we we're gonna talk about, like the I think it's the last thing on our list, was what I like to call micro training. And again, this definitely doesn't fit in with the whole like simple principles training approach. Um like micro training, like the way I like to think of it is let's say you can't get your chest volume in because you don't have enough time. You know that you want to train your chest more but you don't have enough time. Like why not just set yourself a target of doing a hundred push-ups a day? Or every time you walk into a room, you a specific room in your house, you do 10 push-ups or one push-up if that's where you're at or five push-ups or 20 push-ups. It doesn't really matter. It's just about finding ways that you can fit more training into your day within the constraints that are there. And, the, and this can be, this can come about through like many different methods. Like one of the things I like is to have a quote unquote backup kit. So like your own backup gym that you have at home, which could be literally one kettlebell, a skipping rope, you could even have like something like an ab wheel or a little mat or whatever, just a couple of tools that you have at home that if you can't get to the gym or you can't finish your workout, you have something you can train with. So there's always options to apply some sort of stimulus. And I think people get too caught up in the idea of perfection and they don't realize that like you could actually be training. It's just that you're seeking the perfect training as opposed to doing something and doing something is always better than doing nothing. So that micro training approach can be really effective you can get a pull-up bar for your house you can like there's pull-up bars in a lot of public parks um around the country as well like if even if you go to any of like the quilta parks there's almost always a playground that has like a, like lots of pull-up bars monkey bars stuff like that so all those options are at your disposal like there's mountains to climb there's places you can go outdoors and practice calisthenics whatever so there's many ways to train so don't just fit yourself into like one specific box or you'll probably just end up limiting yourself that's very true gary uh, and that is like something like you know pavel satsulini did with like that greasy groove like he's talking about getting better at doing chin-ups or pull-ups or whatever you know and that's actually like oh every time you go through a door like have your chin-up bar set up in the door frame and hit out five chin-ups you know and you're just getting that consistent like like little micro training sessions throughout the day right obviously that's not appropriate for everyone like you can't just be in work and just hit out a set of fucking burpees in your your suit like at the desk yeah you know like it's not going to be appropriate for everyone but at the same time it's like what we're actually talking about these micro training sessions is like getting some workout or some work done towards your overall fitness goals in something that or rather when you have a a time constraint or an inability to get to the gym or an inability to do what you had planned to do you know like you could literally just do a set of lunges you know there's literally like you can add weight to lunges in many forms i know get your girlfriend boyfriend friend whatever on your back do a set of squats you know like there's there's so many ways that you can just add some resistance yeah it's not ideal like you're not going to be able to progressively overload it like tell your girlfriend to get fatter you know you can progressively overload your your squats that you have around your shoulders like that's not it's not going to be uh appropriate you know so you do, you do obviously have to look at it that way but at the same time you have to look at it in the context of like some training is better than no training especially in the context of your overall 
training approach throughout your lifetime. You know, and you see this all the time where people are so dogmatic in their exercise selection, so dogmatic in their, their training that it's like, no, if, I, if this is not perfect, I'm just not going to do it. Right. And that kind of all or nothing approach, like these evidence-based people, cause this is who you see it in. They're like, Oh no, if I can't squat, like there's, there's no point. Like Jesus Christ, I wouldn't do anything. And it's like, they're the exact same people that would go away and tell people that, well, you don't need to have this all or nothing approach with nutrition. You know, it's like, you can hit, just hit your macros and you're, you're good to go. Like this all or nothing approach is not good. And then they have that exact same approach yeah. when it comes to training. It's like, do you not see the dichotomy here with what you're, what, what the, the message you're promoting? Right. So there is that obviously there's going to be individuals that are so strong that it's going to be really, really hard to get an effective stimulus. You know, like if you're squatting like 300 kilos for reps, you know, you're probably going to have a hard time getting an effective stimulus to your legs from some body weight training. Like, you know, maybe it is a, a more effective because you've never done over 20 reps and doing 20 body weight reps of a squat you know, maybe that is an effective stimulus for you. But at the same time, it's like you have to factor in your overall strength level. And um, so we've effectively covered a lot, especially towards the trainee who is stuck for time themselves. So we've got a, given a few different options. The first one is, you know, reduce the, the fluff exercises, the, the excess stuff, right? So if you're doing a lot of isolation work and realistically it's not contributing a huge amount to your, your goals. It's not giving you a huge return on investment. You either have the option of dropping it out or reducing the amount of volume you are doing. Like say you just still want to get your, your chest through a stretch position, even though you notice no real growth from it, no real strength gain from it. You know, maybe you just reduce the overall volume of work that you're doing in that exercise. Maybe you drop it out completely or maybe you reduce the volume, but you do the next thing we uh, recommended, which was boost the intensity of the exercise. And what I mean by that is take it closer to failure and make the exercise more appropriate for the, the strength profile of that muscle. You know, uh, like by using bands, maybe you extend the set a little bit beyond failure you know, you get like a spotter or you get, I don't know, do some sort of rest pause, cluster training, strength cycles. You know, like there's, there's a lot of ways you can effectively do this. Um, so that, that's also a method. And then you also have the, the, the density boosting techniques, right? And that could be reduced rest periods, something like supersets, something like, again, like we said, like drop sets. You know, like you're effectively trying to boost the amount of work you're getting done in per unit of time, effectively, right? Uh, and then you can obviously get some sort of like micro training in throughout the day, the week, the month, whatever, right? And so that, that effectively does help both the people who are currently going to the gym, but also people who are thinking about going to the gym and Obviously, like it's really hard to do because you know you don't have a lot of knowledge coming into this if you aren't going to the gym. So a lot of what we're saying is kind of like, I don't, I don't know how to do any of this. Like, I don't know what they're really talking about. And that again comes down to like using 
the the knowledge of other people to help you either people in the gym or doing something like joining our group coaching or getting personal training or online coaching or whatever right if you don't have the knowledge like the, the easiest way is to seek out the knowledge it could be through youtube videos whatever you know uh still need to to get that knowledge so you can get into the gym and really started effectively making workouts more effective for you. Imagine if like there was like a beginner's ebook like that people just had access to and that'd be cool. That would that would also be really good. We should probably actually make one, yeah. Might write one of them and like release it next week or something. I don't know. Something like that. Um, <laughs> but that's effectively what you, you need to do. However, there's something we we haven't mentioned which is probably the most important thing in terms of making yourself most time efficient in the gym and that's actually looking at the time right because this is what you'll see people do all the time right they won't they'll be like oh my my training sessions take hours you know i'm in there for two hours like i've seen people training for three hours right and no joke the workout the muscle that got the most workout was their jaw right because they're just chatting away right and that's fine like the gym should definitely be a social experience for you if you wanted to be a social experience that's cool no, I'm, not, I'm not gonna i'm not gonna stop you from enjoying the the, the 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 benefits of that social interaction at the gym cool right but if you're complaining about the amount of time you spend in the gym and an hour of it is chatting away you know like you're not spending time in the gym you're spending an hour chatting right so using like your watch stopwatch your phone whatever and actually timing your workouts like actually sticking to some sort of time schedule for your workouts you know i'm not even saying like you have to count the tempo the time under tension of each set or anything like that but like if you say you're giving yourself you in your head you're like yeah i only take about 90 seconds rest or 60 seconds rest or whatever and someone was to time you and they look at it they go okay that first set after the first set you took two minutes after the second set you took five minutes and then you, when you were changing your act to the next exercise, you took 10 minutes. It's like you are not maximizing the amount of work you're doing per unit of time in the gym. Like if we look at a 10 minute time period, like seven minutes of it, are you just resting? You know, like you just have chatting away with your mates, you know? So like you using an actual measure of time for your workouts is really effective. Like me, timing your rest periods but timing your workout overall like if you just go i'm only going to be in here for an hour and you're literally looking at your watch going okay look yeah i'm looking at yeah okay sorry i can't talk because i only have the hour like you literally set a timer for an hour and it's like sorry mate like i, I can't sit here for 10 minutes and have a chat we can do yeah. this afterwards like we can do this that's that's cool man right that, that's fine but right now i'm on i'm on the clock you know like actually book it off with yourself and treat it as if like you are paying yourself or someone is paying you for this hour, right? So every work, all the work that you have to do after the hour, you're not getting paid for, you know? So that that's how you should kind of go into the workout, you know? So you should know your, your workout's only going to be an hour. Like, think of there's someone waiting for you at the end of that hour that you have to meet. You know, you're going to get, you're going to be looking at the clock. You're going to be really effective with your time. You're going to be like, okay, I need to be on point, right? Because this is probably the biggest thing we see. Like we can talk about extended sets, supersets, whatever else, but it's all irrelevant. If you are 
not actually conscious of the time when you are in the gym. And this is something you see across the board. If you will say to us like, oh, should I get up early in the morning or should I get up uh, at 4 a.m. or 6 a.m.? It's like, are you maximizing the time you're already awake? Like, are, are you? And they're like, no, actually, I spend three hours on Netflix and YouTube and on my phone. Like, they look at their, that timer thing on their phone. It's like, spend six hours per day on your phone. It's like, like, do you think getting up an hour earlier is going to magically make you more productive? No, put the phone down, turn Netflix, get rid of your subscription, fucking turn off YouTube, block it on your computer. And wow, like you can actually still sleep and you've just got eight hours extra in your day because you've got rid of all this extra shit, you know? So this this is the case. Same, same in the gym. Like if you're just on your phone for half of it, like yes, you're going to have rest periods. Like no one's saying that you can't have rest periods like that's obviously a thing but even if even in if that's the case if you can still be doing stuff to move forward with your goals like maybe you're training upper body and you're like okay during those i'm supersetting so i'm already improving the density of my workouts but you know what i'm actually going to stretch out my calves in between the 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 sets like you know when i'm resting i'm stretching out my calves or maybe it's stretching out your quads your hamstrings doing some other mobility exercise for i don't know you know maybe you're strengthening the external rotation of your hip during that time you know like there's always ways that you can do more work per unit of time and as we said and obviously there is the factor of this like systemic fatigue but like if you're doing some i don't know banded clams to kind of just turn on your glutes uh, <laughs> in between sets and you're like that like it's actually really helping me you know really learn to actually engage my glutes cool like i don't really care like we can say there's more effective exercises but if you're using it to improve the amount of work you're doing in the gym you know maybe you're training lower body and you're just doing some external rotation of the shoulder in between your sets to kind of work on the strength there awesome like i really don't care maybe you're i don't know you play rugby or something you just you train your neck in between sets you know that would be a good approach same with like you know again calves or something you're like my calves are just shit so i'm just every single set every single break i'm just doing reps even if it's body weight i'm just accumulating reps you know so like there are ways to increase the the density of your workout and that doesn't mean you have to just run around like a headless chicken and basically make everything into this circuit no that's not what we're saying either like but being more time conscious while you're in the gym and looking to maximize every single unit of time when you're in the gym, it's a really good idea. It's a really good idea in your life overall as well. Sick. I think that covers pretty much everything we want to talk about. We've got a few questions if you want to move on to those. Before we move on to those, so if you are an individual who is thinking about getting into the gym and you're looking at these bodybuilding splits and you're kind of going, oh, no, man, like I... I just don't have the time for these 90 minute workouts. I just, I, uh, it's just too long for me, right? Like there's so many ways you can train at home. There's so many ways that you can get an effective workout, like three hours per week, right? If you've got three hours per week, like I see no reason why you couldn't get absolutely unreal results. And I'm talking like fitness model results, you know, um, like that kind of idealized physique, you know, whether it's your Instagram fitness models or like magazine fitness models, like three hours per week, you should be able to get a damn, damn good result from that. Like loads of the results you see from like uh, online training, in-person personal training, whatever. A lot of them are like three to four hours per week. Like I'd say the vast majority of them are three to four hours per week. 
you know? So like, that's not a huge commitment. Now, obviously we're taught, as we said before, like a lot of that, you do have to factor in like, the changing, the getting to the gym, etc. But for most people, if you live in a big city, like there's going to be a gym within 15, 30 minutes of you for most people. Right. And if you don't, then just use the money that you would have spent on a gym membership and buy some equipment, keep it in your room, keep it in your garage or whatever, you know, and literally get an effective workout in that way. Right. So there are ways if you are coming into this and going, ah, look, I just don't have the time. Like there's so few people that I've actually met that just don't have the time to get an effective workout that like it, it like I could literally count them. I made maybe two people I know like overall. And generally that's people that have like really like high pressure jobs and a family, you know? So they're like, Oh, like I just don't have the time, you know, they're getting paid handsomely for what they do. And it requires them to do like 80 to a hundred hours per week. So they're doing that and they're traveling and they're trying to look after, be a good father, mother, whatever, you know? So unless that's you, I don't like most people are like, I just don't have the time. And they're like, I do a nine to five job. And if you do a nine to five job, it should be the piss handiest thing ever to get a great session in every single day. You know, like think about it. Like that's eight hours in work, eight hours of sleep, eight hours of free time. Right. Like what the fuck? Like, how are you not able to do that? We'll factor in again, travel, whatever. Cool. Right. An hour each way, two hours. That's still six hours in your day, every single day to do whatever the fuck you want. Not that hard. Right. And obviously there are other commitments, you know, maybe you're in night college or something, whatever else, but even still, it's like, you can, you can get a 20 minute workout in like, it's not, it's not that hard to do. Right. But yes, Gary questions. Yeah. And just to your point as well, like, I suppose the thing is like, it is for you as well as in like some people like to look at training as if it's some sort of like penance, like, like they need to do it as punishment. It's like, no, this is actually an investment into your future self. Like if you don't do this, like you will pay down the road. Like it's very likely that you will be weaker, less fit and have higher risk of disease in the future. So, you know, when people do kind of put up those surface level excuses, like I can certainly appreciate some of them, but at the same time, it's like you do actually need to do this for your future self and i think like especially i i especially like to think about this in terms of like friends like like a bad friend is going to be the person that says oh you're fine sure you're you're so busy there's no need to exercise but a good friend is going to be the one that actually tells you like all right well do you not want to be able to look after your kids with, uh, like when they do when they do grow up a little bit and go play with them and stuff because you're too unfit and it's like oh that's harsh but it's like it's not harsh that's actually caring about someone and you know the same thing goes if you're young and if your parents are getting older it's like you want to be like fit and strong and, and useful for them so that you can do jobs for them when they need you. So they're the types of things that, that make it about more than just like penance because that's not what it is. All right. But anyway, you pay now or you pay later. Like the, the total exactly. you pay. And if you don't discipline yourself, the world will discipline you. Anyway, questions. Let's get out of this pseudo philosophy. Right. First question. Well, has the import is it important to to understand physiology as a coach? Um, like, yes, I would say it's probably one of the most important things to understand. Like, along with lots of other subjects, which I think, which I think people just gloss over at times. Like, I think a lot of people 
we've talked about this many a time who like they have essentially what we call a social media education as in like the things that you know and the things that you say and the things that you believe are a story in your head that are the result of what other people have said on social media you haven't actually thought for yourself and if you were to reason what you do or what you prescribe from first principles you probably wouldn't be able to do it so that's why understanding things like anatomy physiology like uh base some basic basic mechanics um, and then like some psychological concepts and things like that are useful. You know, you need to understand something about behavior change. Although I think you can learn a lot of that through coaching as well. But, you know, th even things like motivational interviewing, if that's a weakness for you, there are things you need to, you know, try and understand. All of those, all of those things, basic metabolism, etc. they allow you to reason from first principles and to be a better coach without needing to use someone else's method. Because I think that's what, a lot of other people like rely on it. and we talked about it in this podcast where you know when people say they're evidence-based what they're really doing is reciting sound bites from maybe like five to ten people who are prominent voices in the industry they might be very reliable but they are not working with your clients and you're the one that needs to work with your clients so i think like physiology one of the fundamental core subjects i'm i'm, I'm sure you'll agree do you agree oh not at all <laughs> not at all it's just dumb yeah, like I, we were saying this before, like I think this is one of the reasons that the life expectancy in, or like the career life expectancy in the fitness industry is like three to five years. And it's because people never actually learn what they're supposed to learn. So they can just get to a stage where, yeah, they might be able to get results with some people, but they're kind of like, they're just at a loss. And because they don't really understand it, they're always almost living in fear that, someone will call them out on it someone that will ask them a question they don't really know the answer to you know and again like we're not saying that you have to have a, a phd a doctorate in physiology it's like no just you just need to know some basic physiology you need to know some basic you know exercise mechanics some basic like metabolism and nutrition you know, like it, like it doesn't have to be really in depth. It also doesn't have to be like, I always think this as well. People kind of get lost once you start talking about specifics. Like you don't actually have to be very specific with your knowledge. Like you just have to have a, a very generalized overview. And what I mean by that is if an expert was to walk into the room and they were to talk, yeah, you might not understand all the terminology they use, but you can keep up with the overall flow of the conversation. You know, like, you might have a car, but you're not able to understand the actual inner workings of the car, right? So if a mechanic is talking to you about this and they're saying something about, I don't know, the the alternator or something, and you're kind of like, no idea. They're like the catalytic converter, and you're like, I don't know what I, like you, you have no clue, like no, nothing. There's nothing even in your head like, you know, looking together. You're like, oh, I don't even, I, like, I couldn't even point to it, you know? Like that's, that's where I find most, not most, but a lot of personal trainers find themselves. Like they're kind of like, I don't really know, right? And that's, that, literally that's all you have to get to, the level where if an expert was to come over and talk to you about it, yeah, you might not understand everything. Like if a mechanic came over and talked to me about the inner workings of a car, I might be able to point to a few things. I might be able to be like, oh yeah, cool. I, I know the rough, I know the internal combustion engine. I know the rough, how it works. But, you know, like I wouldn't be able to fix it, you know. But 
as a personal trainer, you should be able to listen into a conversation with someone that is uh, a doctorate in, I don't know, metabolism or something. You can be like, yeah, actually, I understand the roughly, roughly what they're saying. Like, I didn't really understand when he was talking about, I don't know, oxaloacetate or something. And I'm like, I don't like, I remember hearing that. And I remember it plays into this, you know, cycle here, but he was talking about this extra thing. I didn't really know that, but I had an idea of what was going on with the, the basic stuff. And that's all you really need to do as a personal trainer. Like, yes, if you want to be an educator, you better damn well know your shit. But if you just want to help people transform their bodies, transform their health, improve their performance, whatever, like you just need to know, have a working understanding. It doesn't need to be that in depth. Yeah. And I think, I think like the main purpose more so than like drastically changing what you do with clients is like, elevating your bullshit meter as in like you're less likely to do things that are totally stupid if you have a good foundational knowledge it's not necessarily that everything that you'll do will be superior to all other coaches like realistically people with a good knowledge of physiology they're not going to be doing things much differently but they i think they're less likely to fall victim to some things that are just useless and don't actually make physiological sense and that's relevant to things like supplements to nutrition to specific training protocols even when you're talking about training adaptation so definitely beneficial but like you said you don't need to be like a PhD. And if there are people that know more than you, like you don't have to be like, oh, I need to know more, 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 more. You know, you could always learn more, but at the end of the day, you need to be able to translate that as well. So there's a, there's a certain point of diminishing returns, as they say. So hopefully that helps. Yeah, and also I think on this, just on the last point on this, like you, you're allowed to refer out to experts. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to be a fountain of knowledge. Like it's, like that's not your job. Your job is to help someone get to their overall goal right that doesn't mean you have to be able to interpret blood work that doesn't mean that you have to know everything about exercise mechanics it doesn't mean you have to know everything about nutrition doesn't mean you have to know everything about metabolism etc etc it just means that you have to have enough knowledge to be able to make the correct decisions for that individual and also understand that yeah there are probably better coaches out there than me you whoever and in certain areas and you can ask them for their opinion. Like that's like, I always think it's really weird. Like people will have no problem searching on a search engine or going to PubMed or something and finding the answer. But if they were to ask a person in person who they know knows the answer, they'd feel embarrassed or ashamed or whatever. It's like, you're effectively doing it through a computer. You know, like you're just, why is it harder in person? Like just go up to the person, ask them or on social media, ask them. Right. Again, that's not to say like, don't do your homework, you know, like you still need to have put in some sort of, or to show people that you've done some sort of work to try to understand this because no one wants to help someone who's done nothing. Like people will ask you a question that's very easily found just by using a search engine. Like they're like, Oh, where what what hours are this shop is this shop open as if you know like 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 just search engine boom bang it in it's not that hard you know but yeah you can ask an expert you can message them on instagram social media whatever and more often than not they will reply you know so don't be afraid to do that and also you should have done your homework before you ask the question yes sir Next question. Very specific, but is an intra-match or training carbohydrate source likely to be useful for a GAA player to aid performance? 
and maybe like the the duration of the the session um whether it's training or an actual match it's just kind of on that verge where like you might get a benefit from it but it's like not likely to be massive like and what i mean by that is like generally once you get over like an hour two hours three hours like the longer the duration the more benefit you're probably going to get from that um like in this case i'd probably wouldn't worry too much about like constantly like slamming it down but if you if you have an option to have a drink at half time that's probably a good call but at the end of the day like your nutrition leading up to that point is going to be like the primary determinant of the field you have available so eating enough carbohydrates the day before the morning of a couple of hours before you know they're going to be there for use um, but but within that time frame, like there might be a benefit, but I I couldn't say for certain that there would be for you. But I definitely think there's no harm, you know, getting in some Lucas Edge sport at halftime or whatever. What do you think? I 100% agree. Like there's there's probably ever so slight benefits, and there's also psychological yeah. stuff that mm. you have to factor in. Like even like you know like they do that. Even though there is obviously physiology to it as well. Like you know the the swishing oh, around so. swishing around of like carbohydrate solution mm-hmm. type thing and then even spitting it out leads to a performance boost again like obviously we're talking about endurance and like GAA obviously is somewhat on the endurance spectrum because you know it's a it's a long long enough match and obviously you've got the half time even though people just when they talk about sport they just discount the the breaks as if they don't count I'm like that's still part of the overall thing like your your aerobic system doesn't just turn off like lactate is still being buffered out of the cell acidity is still being buffered out of the cell you know like the, things are still working you know so you have to factor that in so again like I, i'm with gary on this like your, your your nutrition leading up to it is more important and that's that's where 99 percent of your focus should be your nutrition both in the day before the day of the week before the month of everything should be dialed in before you start thinking about these little extras. However, if you do have all that stuff dialed in and it's literally you're like, okay, well, I'm actually just going to add in a little bit of dextrose powder to mm-hmm. my water bottle and keep it at the sideline. So whenever I get a chance, maybe, yeah. you know, you just have a sip of it throughout the match, you know, maybe you have a sip of it throughout the, the, the break. I see literally no issue with that, especially if it fits in with your overall calories and macronutrient goals. Like I'm like, yeah that's cool like the same thing i was talking about with someone who's adding calories to their overall uh diet and they're trying to they're trying to bulk up and they're like oh i'm struggling to get calories in i'm like all right let's add some liquid calories in when is the most appropriate time to have those liquid calories yeah probably around training you know you're probably going to get more use out of them cool add them in then you know it's it's not a big deal i don't think it's going to be a game changer don't think it's going to be a something that, you know, absolutely improves your performance so much that you are now on intercounty. Like, I, I don't think it's going to be that. However, you might notice that, hey, you feel a little bit more energetic. You feel good. That little bit of fatigue you had towards the end of the game isn't there. You know, you're actually able to be more effective throughout the whole game, you know. But most 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 teams and most sports already do this. Like, even though they, they focus on stuff, like they'll have, like, oranges at halftime. You know, it's like, you're still getting carbohydrates. You're still getting electrolytes. You're still getting whatever. Like, again, it's it's no big deal. Yeah, I remember. I remember when I used to be a, a mad Man United fan. Rio Ferdinand used to like towards the end of the game, he'd be going to the hat, the the sideline for Jaffa cakes. I'm like, all right, it's elite sports there, there. But yeah, no, it, like the thing with this is like, unless it upsets your gut, 
there's no there's no downside associated with getting the carbohydrates in and only potential upside. So I'm like, if you have the opportunity, like why not? You know, so so there you go. Uh, next question: Does dairy cause bloating? Um, like it depends. Like I suppose this is one of those questions where when you ask, I'm like, well, how do you feel when you eat, when you eat dairy? And if you're like, oh, I feel fine, cool, doesn't cause bloating for you, get on with your life. You know, it's it's one of those ones. But at the same time, like. So obviously there are individual differences. Like if you are lactose intolerant, like that is a different answer for you. Some people might find that they have a poor response to dairy and they get real bloated when they have it. But I think this is a good one for, for that kind of individual where you're just like, Oh yeah, I actually feel fine when I have dairy. So I can just kind of get on with it and don't worry too much about it. What do you think? A hundred percent. Like uh, it's just going to go come into individual variants in terms of what's like genetic variants, like you as an actual individual, but also then you have to factor in like, what you have done leading up to that point, right? Yes. If you've done stuff that, I don't know, maybe for example, like you are a female and it's around, uh, we'll say around ovulation, estrogen is, is higher, like just before ovulation. And you know, maybe that's messing up a little bit with like calcium gated ion channels in your gut and you have this huge like influx of calcium via milk. You might notice you're a bit more bloated then as a result. You know, you might, you might notice that. That's something, again, it's, a, it's a, about a, an individual variance, but also you have to look into like what you have done throughout the whole week. Like maybe you have been chewing a lot of chewing gum and you're getting a lot of like polyols and they're already like on the verge of upsetting your gut. And now you just hammer a lot of these like uh, maybe potentially carbohydrates that you are not really great at digesting. You don't have enough lactase, like you're fine, but you know, you, you always kind of get a little bit bloated, gassy from it, but not nothing serious. And then you have something else, this like load of polyols already that are kind of disrupting your gut. Maybe then you notice you get bloated. So again, this is going to come back down to you as an individual, what you have done leading up to that point, and then how you actually experience this. Yeah, and I think another thing people are desperate for as well is like, oh, I only eat, I only have dairy sometimes, and any time when I have it, I feel like crap. Whereas what they're actually talking about is like, they don't eat dairy from one end of the month to the next, and then they have a big tub of Ben and Jerry's, and it's like you can't just say it was because of the 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 dairy, like it's it's you're, or they'll you're, do something like pizza, and they'll be like, oh, yeah. cheese just doesn't like doesn't agree with me. I'm like, how did you want to make that? <laughs> you literally just just eat the cheese off the pizza, <laughs> pizza. <laughs> yeah so it's particularly relevant like when you're talking about like high calorie meals in general like you're kind of supposed to feel bloated after that as in like you only have so much room you are going to feel a bit bloated and that's okay like i, I think people kind of catastrophize about bloating sometimes thinking that it's always a bad thing um and it can be for some people you know very unpleasant experience but it is normal to feel full and for your belly to swell a little bit after a meal you don't need to stress too much about that um, how to make sure night shifts as a 20 year old don't hinder your progress in the gym. Uh, this is definitely a difficult one because night shifts are difficult for people and they definitely like hit some people more than others. Like I think you can, you can really try and like, like theorize about this and be like, Oh, based on this, this, and this, and this point in your circadian rhythm, this is probably be best time. But ultimately it actually comes down to like one, where do you have the time? because that's probably the biggest barrier for people on night shifts is like, I just don't know what time is appropriate. And then secondly, like, when do you feel best? And third, like, when are you going to sleep? Okay. So, so they're the things I would, I would first think about when it comes to, to night shifts. Cause I've had some clients who much prefer training 
like after their dinner before they go in for their shift but then other clients who are just like look i know i should pro- i'm probably I, pro- I should probably be going straight to bed but i much prefer training in the morning before i go um, and i don't think i have any reason to believe that either of those are going to be massively better like you know there are downsides to night shifts definitely definitely and i'm not sure there's any like particular training time that's going to be better so i i, I would go with personal preference when you feel best your schedule etc what do you think 100 like the only thing you can do with night shifts is to make your schedule as consistent as possible yeah and you can make your schedule as consistent as possible which is really annoying because like i always just think i'm like i know like the 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 unions and whatever else have argued for years to get it to a, a position where it's like oh well you do three days on and two days off and whatever schedule your union has dictated you know i'm like that's actually the worst thing i've ever heard like that literally like that it's is harder <laughs> that makes everything worse like everything you know <laughs> like it sounds good but it's like i would much rather someone that had a consistent night schedule like if you worked I don't know, 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. I'm like, I'd much rather see that as a, a consistent schedule. Well, that, that's actually going to be like seven hours. So 10 p.m. till 6 a.m. I'd much rather see that if you just did that every single night. So much easier to organize your schedule. So much easier to minimize any negatives that is associated with that. But you doing this, oh, I do a night shift here, two days on here a day off, then I have a day shift. And it's like, man, there's no marker for your body. Like your body wants to get into that, like synchronicity, that kind of rhythm. You know, a circadian rhythm is when we kind of always go with, but it doesn't necessarily need to be a circadian rhythm. Like it can literally be uh, like a, a work synced rhythm. Like if you have that night schedule, like it will eventually become a sort of a circadian rhythm. But even if you do it off your night schedule, you're, you're working at night schedule, much easier for everything. So although some people may disagree with this, if you can argue or talk to your boss about having consistent nights so that you at least know that your days are the same, your weeks are the same, whatever is the same, you're probably going to be in a better position. That's probably not something that you can actually do. But if it is, I would argue that that's a, that's a better approach. But if you can't do that, it's literally just do what you can do when you can do it and try to maximize consistency wherever it is. And I mean, consistently in terms of getting to the gym, you know, like Gary's saying, like this personal preference when you want to go to the gym, but consistency in your approach to things. Like maybe you fast up until your shift allows you to get onto a new schedule. Like whatever you do, whatever things you do, try to get some consistency around those days. Yeah, like it's definitely tough and you are just kind of dealing with like the best of a couple of bad options really like, you know. Um, so that like that that's the other thing about saying, you know, it's much better just have it consistently all nights, but then people are trying to weigh up like, all right, am I, I want to weigh up my health benefits and how I feel with also like, I don't know, seeing my friends, seeing my girlfriend, spending time together at normal times, <laughs> etc. Um, so that, that's, there are things that you have to weigh up and like, you know, there it is a very real health risk i guess in that like night shifts aren't good for you in the long term but i mean in the short term like if you're making extra money i'm like yeah go for it like why not you know i think i think that's the other side of it people sometimes get too freaked out when they see like on oh, night shifts are uh, rated as a car- carcinogen you know it's it's 
it's going to really harm my health. Like if you have to do it short term, like don't worry too much about that. Just kind of get on with it. Try your best and just don't make it a 40 year pursuit, I guess. Um, next question was, should an athlete use a belt for heavy squats and say maybe use no belt on higher rep days? Um, like what I would say is like if you're, if you're trying to maximize the weight that you can lift and that helps you, then I think that's a good idea. You know, I also think it's a good idea to be somewhat minimize the discrepancy between your belted and your non-belted lifts. As in, if you just like fall to pieces and you, you don't know how to brace or anything when you don't have a belt and you can't even train when you don't have a belt with you, then I think you probably might want to do some more belt, beltless training. Um, but in general, I don't, I don't see the, the downside to training belted that a lot of people seem to proclaim. Like a lot of people will automatically say, ditch the belt, you know, it's just hiding weakness. Whereas like if it's giving you an extra five to 10 kilos and your goal is maximal strength, there's ultimately not really a reason like not to use it. Um, what do you think? I, I know you don't well. use a belt. Well, I, I don't agree with belts personally. Like I, <laughs> like I notice I get about 20 kilos out of a belt, but I'm like, and it's just such a hassle bringing it to the gym, doing whatever. And then I'm like, even though I don't really agree with what I'm going to say at the same time, I'm like mm, sports specificity, specificity, even like, I'm like, I don't use a belt in my sport. So, you know, whatever, even though I don't actually technically agree with that. Like I, I do have that kind of in the back of my mind as well. Yeah. But then also I'm like, if, if you were going to use a belt in my mind, surely you would use it on your higher rep days, if anything, right? Because it's teaching you to, I'm sorry, teaching you to brace, you know, like it's effectively allowing you have better bracing ability, right? Because you're able to push out against something. Surely that's something that's more likely to fatigue earlier than the, the maximal weight, if that makes sense. Like you're, you're going to notice your, your core fatigues and that's what stops you getting the reps in. Like you shouldn't need, I don't know, in my mind, I'm like, surely it would be better ditch the belt on the, the heavier days and use it for the higher rep days because it's going to give you better core endurance if that makes sense because if we go from the argument that it's just hiding weakness then that's obviously saying that it's contributing somewhat to core strength right so obviously that's more core endurance strength rather than like like no way it's improving like your your one rm strength if that makes sense in, in your core um so it's it's your core endurance and um, so surely it'd be more beneficial on your, your quote unquote lighter days, your, your higher rep days in my mind. But then at the same time, I just think I'm like, man, if you're going to be doing belted squats, just do belted squats, like just across the board, like don't make it a big thing. Like, yes. Like what Gary's saying, like you, you shouldn't have this huge discrepancy between the, the, the two of them. Like, as I said, like I, I noticed about a 20 kilo addition from adding on a belt. Well, obviously it takes like, two to three weeks to get fully used to it, you know, cause obviously it, it digs into you. It feels a little bit weird the first few times, but uh, at the same time, it's like, you, there shouldn't be this huge discrepancy consistently. Like it should be a consistent kind of discrepancy. It shouldn't be like, Oh yeah, I can squat 180 without the, the or with the belt. And then I can squat a hundred without the belt. Like it shouldn't be this huge, huge discrepancy, you know? But uh, in my mind, I'm like, just, do a block of no belts for a while and then do a block of belted for a while. Like just pick your goal, stick to the exercise. Like this is like, again, like you wouldn't just go, hmm, maybe I'm going to do 
one day of wider squats and one day of closer squats. Like it's like this is irrelevant. Like pick pick what you're actually trying to achieve and then do it across the board. Like it, it, there shouldn't be these massive variations unless you're actually looking for a variation. Like I would just treat that as a, a different exercise. You know? Yeah, like at the end of the day, like it just it doesn't really matter that much for the training outcomes that people are actually looking for. As in like, if a belt, if a belt helps you to lift more weight for more reps that might improve the hypertrophy response, it's going to obviously improve your maximal strength within that context because you can lift more weight and that's your measurement tool. So if they're the outcomes you're looking for, go for it. You know, it's, it's going to still, you're still going to be strengthening all the muscles of your quote unquote core and your spinal extensors, etc. So there isn't really a known like downside of using it other than potentially if you need to carry your strength over to something where you're not using a belt, then there might be better transfer if you go, if you train beltless, you know? So that's the only real caveat. Like don't worry too much about this stuff. Some people think some people come at this with the, the perspective that the reason you wear a belt is to protect your back, which like, which I wouldn't really consider to be the case at all. Um, like it's not, it's unlikely to change your, in your injury risk meaningfully at all. It's, it's really just to improve your ability to maintain stability at your trunk. And that's essentially all it's doing. And I don't, I don't think there's going to be a meaningful difference in, in injury risk between using it or not using it. Cause if you're not using it and you say that, Oh, not using the belt is an injury risk. It's like, well, you're also using lighter loads and with like the belt, you're using heavier loads. So they're probably going to cancel each other out, even if you did make that argument. So, and also you're just factoring. It's like this is going to get more intra-abdominal pressure. Surely that's more pressure on your spine. Then, so I'm like, surely that's a higher injury risk to wear the belt. I don't know. Yeah, it's funny. You see those things debated like so much in the research. It's like, like worrying about these really like the minutiae of the forces that are happening. And like, to be fair, like one of the mechanisms that a belt works is like, if you can increase your intra-abdominal pressure, it essentially creates an extensor moment. Um, and you can argue it reduces compression of the spine, but it's like people get so caught up in those details that they're like, all right, what's your goal? Pick your goal, work towards it, and then manage your training loads appropriately. And you'll probably be fine. You know, you don't need to worry too much about it. Yeah, I also um, always think that like intra-abdominal pressure thing is really weird because they'll say it and they'll just completely forget that we have internal organs as well. And I'm like, okay. I'm cool. crush my liver. Literally, that's what I'm saying, right? Like literally, it's like, oh, cool. Like this, okay, we can argue it makes the, the spine, quote unquote, stronger. It can make you, your muscles better able to, you know, produce forces. You're able to transfer that through this more stable trunk or whatever. But I'm like, where do your internal organs go? Like they're feeling that pressure too. So unless you're, unless you're going to like somehow work out all the forces that your liver is feeling, that your intestines are feeling. I'm do like, you not? Is, that a, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Are you getting hypertrophy of the, the liver now? Like what, what, what's the crack here like? And then someone will go turn around and be like, oh, leg extensions are bad for your knees because of sheer. I'm like, <laughs> this, this, he's that there. That they're colon sheer, bro. <laughs> Guys, that's what I do. I use blind pressure, and then it like enhances carbohydrate absorption, like through the gut, because oh, all the pressure, actually, you know, you're actually squeezing uh, insulin out of your pancreas, like that's exactly. That's it. That's how it works. You don't do that. Weird. <laughs> and then the final question is: Is raising your heels while squatting suboptimal? And if you must do this to get decent depth, should you try to reduce it over time? 
Well, I guess like, like the problem, firstly, Sean, you're my client. So feel free to send me videos of your squat and we'll sort that out. Secondly, um, is raising heels while squatting suboptimal? Yes, probably. Like you don't want to be shifting onto the front of your feet because firstly, like you're not going to be very stable on the front of your feet. It tells you that you're exceeding, you're either losing position or exceeding the range of motion that you have available elsewhere so that you have to kind of shift forward. Um, and ultimately, like there's, there's unlikely to be any benefit from doing that. You know, they, there's the furthest extreme you could take this to is if you, you one day your heels raise too much, you shift to the front of your feet, you fall over, you know, <laughs> unlikely to happen. But, but yeah, in general, there's no reason for it to be a better option. So what I would say is in the short term, one could potentially reduce their range of motion to the point at which their heels stay on the ground and then work on adjusting their positioning. Like for some people, they might find that slightly less of an arch in their back or slightly pushing their knees out more or changing their stance, that these things change the way that they squat. It can even be like the way you're balancing on your feet. You know, you might be too far back in your heels at the top. And when you come to the bottom, you shift rapidly forward to the front of your feet. So these are the, the kind of nuances of technique that might lead to that. Um, so there are definitely things we can change. So yeah, Sean, hit me up with that video. But <laughs> go yeah, on. I just think it's it's really, I always go back and forth in my mind because I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. That makes sense in terms of we raise the heels, we get a more open ankle joint, we'll call it that, right? The, the angle of the ankle. Oh, I, one second. I actually just totally misinterpreted this question. I thought he meant that he was coming down to the bottom of the squat and he was... His heels were lifting, like he was falling forward. I was like, oops. That's <laughs> Never mind. We can talk about that in a second, right? But uh, raising the heels, like obviously if you are, like Gary was saying there, like talking about like your heels are coming up off the ground as you squat, right? Right. But what I'm talking about is like raising your heels using like a wedge or an Olympic shoe or whatever else. Cool, right? I always go back and forth in my mind with this because – like you would generally tell someone that raised their heels, like you were talking about Gary there, uh, like they, their heels came off the ground. You would be like, Ooh, that's bad. You know, like you, you would, you would think that looking at someone, right. And you'd be like, we need to work on ankle mobility, strength, positioning, whatever else. Right. But then someone will go around and go, okay, wear Olympic lifting shoes and it's all good. And I'm like, okay, well, like, this kind of dichotomizes in my mind, right? Even though I'm like, yeah, it actually makes more sense. Because then you go, like I, like I wear Olympic lifting shoes, right? So then you go, okay, so this is opening up the ankle joint, giving you this more open ankle joint. But then you have to factor in the fact that like your knees have to travel a little bit further forward, right? So you're kind of going a little bit deeper then. Like and people will say like, oh, it reduces the depth you have to go to in your squat. And I'm like, I don't actually think it does, right? And then also it's like, the, the torso positioning for some it's going to definitely open up that torso to a more like upright torso at the hip joint like right but then it's like okay but then the way you are producing force through the ground in my mind this is what i'm saying i go through this all the time where i'm like the way you're doing it it kind of lends itself to making you tip forward because you're on this slanted board right so i'm like this this kind of, or like a wedge shoe. So I'm like, this kind of shouldn't work <laughs> in my mind when I think of it. But then I'm like, for some people, it works really well. Like if I use squat shoes and a slightly lowered bar position, like it's still high bar, like that's the way I squat, but like more so on 
the bottom of my upper trap rather than the, the top of my upper trap, if that makes sense. Like I notice a huge benefit, you know, and that's again, obviously because that little inch of difference in terms of shifting the bar back that little bit. And then obviously with the, the elevated heel, they kind of cancel each other out, but I still get the benefit of that more open ankle. I'm like, okay, so that makes more sense for me. But again, like I always go back and forth with it in my mind. But yeah, Gary, do you want to add something now that you actually understand the question and can read English? Yeah, I actually answered that totally wrong. <laughs> That's why I was wondering when you started answering, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> but yeah, no, we actually talked about this like loads in one particular podcast and I have no idea what podcast that was. Sorry. But we were talking about that, about how, you know, people say it's easier to get to depth, you know, if you're using a squat shoe or you're elevating your heels, but not necessarily. It depends how you measure depth. Like if you're measuring depth as a power lifter, sometimes it can be easier to do it without a squat shoe because your knees aren't as further forward, as far forward. And when your knees go forward, because they're on a hinge of the ankle, like the tibia, it's going to be going down lower as well. So it's not just forward, it's forward and down, which means that you then have to come to a lower position with your hip to meet that standard of depth. So what we're actually talking about in the hypertrophy or general tra- general training context, we're generally talking about getting into deeper knee flexion. So like you said, by reducing that limitation at the ankle, essential, essentially what we do is we bring the knees further forward and then the hip has to go through less range of motion to get to the same relative position at the knee. So I, do, I don't think that is suboptimal by any means. Like I think it is a good strategy. Um, I, I think it's a fairly sound strategy. Don't see there being anything suboptimal with it really like to your point what was your point again uh oh yeah about the the way you're producing force like the way you're producing force it sort of depends on on ultimately like where the bar is like because the bar because the bar is on your back like you're not you're naturally not going to push forward you're essentially still pushing down especially because the 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 bottom of your step or your shoe is still flat on the floor so you end up kind of distributing the force differently at the level of the foot um, and you definitely you definitely find that when you're using squat shoes you do shift a little bit more to the front of your foot but ultimately the force that you're producing overall is still distributed down through that flat sole of the shoe or the wedge um, so yeah like people definitely get benefit from them like I don't think it's going to be a night and day difference like especially when you're talking about a very small wedge um, but, it, but definitely useful if you're someone who has quite a forward lean squat like if you're leaning forward a lot um, for whatever reason you find that you can't, your knee just doesn't go fa- forward far, you don't have great dorsiflexion, then that could be, you know, a good strategy for you. Like I use, I use them as well. I find them useful. You find them useful. And generally like machines that feel really good that allow you to get into deep flexion, they're designed in such a way that they replicate this already. Like some leg presses and some hack squats, you'll find that because of the angle of the foot plate, they're already essentially putting you in that position where you're starting in slight plantar flexion, meaning you're essentially in the same position as if you had a wedge. So those machines are doing that for you already. So remember that it's not just about a squat. Um, so yeah, I think beneficial um, if it's comfortable for you. And yeah, that's that's all our questions, bro. On that squat thing as well, like you can literally make an argument like I did about the belt, like, you know, sports specificity. And it's like, oh, well, you don't use squat shoes out and about and whatever else. And I'm like, yeah, I also don't use barbells out and about. So yep. <laughs> it's like, whatever. But at the same time, it's like, well, this is allowing me to get a better training stimulus. And again, you could argue that with the belt, say that the belt is allowing you to get a better training stimulus and therefore use one. But again, I'm like, well, like, 
in my sport, I don't really squat. Like there's maybe a few positions where I squat, but there are lots of positions where I need to brace my core. So I want to get really good at bracing my core, but like the squat is just, I want to strengthen the muscles, you know? So again, like you have to look at like the overall sports specificity of what you're trying to achieve. But at the same time, I'm like, I can squat just as well without squat shoes. You know, like it's not like there's this huge drop off in the weight I'm using, you know? However, what I do notice is I move more of that tension onto my lower back and therefore I'm able to train less because my lower back takes more of a beating and therefore I build up more fatigue in that particular muscle, which is not the muscle that I'm trying to target with squats, <laughs> you know? So again, like it, it depends on what the overall goal is. For most people, like elevating the heel is going to lead to a better, more upright squat in, in terms of like, bodybuilding squat you know in terms of building the quads building the musculature that you're trying to target probably more sports specific for the majority of sports than like a, a more low bar type squat um like heels planted hips back a lower bar position but again like that might be the exact squat that's required for your your sport like <laughs> it depends um but yeah there's no questions gary i'm gonna get out of here because it's quite sunny out here and Laura's going to beat the shit out of me now, Chris. Yeah, don't worry. I, I know that feel. <laughs> you're, going get a, you're going to get a beat more. And nothing else to add, peeps. As we alluded to earlier, or as I alluded to, um, we do have a little bit of a surprise release coming like next week. So we will be releasing our beginner's ebook. So if you are you know, interested in that sort of thing, you want to get your brother or sister or mother or granny to start lifting, start training, start understanding nutrition, that's going to be a useful resource. We've been writing it for quite a while now, um, and it will reflect, I guess, a lot of the, the concepts that we discussed in the podcast, but in a more applied manner, like just showing you, like, right, this is what you do. This is why you do it. Go off and, you know, chase your goals. So stay tuned for that. Um, and other than that, you know, if, you want, if you're interested in our coaching service, we do have spots available. If you're interested in the types of clients that we work with, you can, access, you can see all their testimonials on our website, the details of the service. If you want to organize a Skype call with Patty or I to discuss the coaching service or anything like that, please feel free to get in touch. So yeah, that's, that's it for this week. And other than that, I guess it's just it's too easy. This is true. There is also another surprise coming, Gary, but we'll, ah, yes. we'll talk about that um, next week. I have nothing else to add, so goodbye. It's too easy. <laughs>